If someone were to write a book about your life, what story would they tell? Would you be excited to read it? Or would there be things about your story that you would be horrified to see written down? Our lives are so full of many experiences, experiences of joy, excitement, sadness, and regret. And these experiences and the choices that we make in response to them are what make up each of our stories. But as Christians, there's more to our stories than what we can do or have done. In Christ, our stories can become part of God's story, a story full of hope and beauty and grace. In our interview today, I'm talking with David Murray, the senior pastor of First Byron Christian Reformed Church in Byron Center, Michigan, and the author of The Story Changer, How God Rewrites Our Story by Inviting Us Into His, from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, David, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. It's great to be here, Matt, and looking forward to chatting with you about how the story changer can change our story with his story. Yeah, yeah, we're going to jump into the the complicated dynamics of our own stories, of our mm. lives, and, and how God can make and even remake our stories to fit within his story. And it's, there's so much there. There's so many different facets to that, uh, how we make sense of things that happen to us and how we think about um, how we tell ourselves the story of our own lives and where it's all going. Uh, but, but one person that you, you spend a lot of time focused on in your new book is King Solomon. And I think he helps to kind of illustrate some things about our lives and the way that we view our lives. Uh, Solomon is this great example of someone who tried everything that there was under the sun. He kind of enjoyed all of the the things that this life has to offer us, whether that's wisdom or wealth or pleasure, uh, all of that was kind of at his fingertips, and yet he still concluded that life under the sun is ultimately meaningless. And so I wonder if, as a pastor and as a professor, how often do you hear people coming to you expressing that kind of same realization, that their lives feel meaningless? I don't think most people are as honest as King Solomon. I think that's one of the things that say Ecclesiastes really hits you with. It's just its stark realism. It's so authentic. The masks are off. He's just pouring his heart out. He's letting it all hang out, as they say today. Hmm. That's a very hard thing to do. I think he models it well for us there. Uh, But very few people actually get to that kind of stark honesty. Some do, and I believe that's really the first step to changing our stories with God's story, to admit, as Solomon Mm. did, that our story is messy. Our story is is not what we set out to write. Uh, Our stories are looking like having a, a sad ending, and is there anything we can do? When somebody comes to me with that, whether it's in counseling or just, you know, you meet them on an airplane or something, I always think, wow, I think God's at work here. Because for someone to actually admit, my story is a mess, I can't change it, I've tried rewriting it and failed, is there anyone who can help me? That's massive and and a huge evidence of hope that God's at work. Hmm. That can be so counterintuitive, though, because when someone is 
at a spot where they're ready to admit that and acknowledge that that can seem like the lowest spot they could be in, you know? Hmm. So, and yet you're saying that gives you hope. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the pattern of the Bible is that God kills and makes alive. He wounds and he heals. He convicts and he converts. And therefore, yes, it can be like a really dark place to be and hopeless, but it can also go the other way. If God mm. is in this, then he has a purpose in this. And, and it's to make people you know, give up writing, to throw the keyboard away, hand over the pen and say, I can't do this. God help me. Mm. That, that is the biggest moment of hope in anyone's story. When I see somebody still trying, still working away, still trying another strategy, another new leaf, another new chapter, it's, I, I'm, I'm thinking, yep, they're not ready. They're mm. not ready. Mm. So you said that kind of coming to that point, acknowledging uh, the futility of what they've been trying is is really an expression of, of honesty, a deep honesty with themselves about their lives. I guess I wonder though, is that more common or is it more common that at least today perhaps people don't ever get to that, not because they lack the courage to be that honest. It almost feels like often today people maybe aren't even taking the time to think deeply mm. enough about their lives. They're just so kind of distracted and um, just kind of living for the here and now. They're not thinking about these deeper questions about ultimate meaning and where they're going. Do you, do you find that that's the case today? Definitely. Distraction and diversion is one of the devil's greatest tools. And it's interesting in talking to some people recently in my own congregation who have, who have come to faith, each story has had a time of enforced silence. It, it may have been through illness, in hospital, or things like even just being on vacation where there was no Wi-Fi signal. <laughs> just Even just a few days of that seems to bring a, a new reality to life. And I think also you've got the problem today of there are just so many things to try. Mm. The, the options are almost innumerable. So it can take people many, many years to get, get through the vast range of possible paths to happiness. And I think that too delays the moment of reckoning and mm. humbling. Yeah. Therefore, I think, yeah, to, to get people to be quiet for a time is, is rare. I think that's where church comes in. If somebody's in church, it's like a, a, an hour or so of enforced focus, which <laughs> is almost impossible to find today. Mm. I've also found for myself, you know, it's, it's kind of well known that suffering, our experiences of suffering mm. and pain can often also wake us up to these deeper questions and, and ponderings. I even found for myself, you know, this, this terrible war in Ukraine right now mm. where we, mm -hmm. it's not suffering that I'm experiencing personally, but it's suffering and pain and evil uh, on display at such a scale that it, it has even prompted my own thinking you know, wow, there, there must be more, you know, to this life, to this world than, than what is here. Uh, have you found that to also be a powerful wake-up call for people? 
It is horrendous, Matt. There's no question that it's disturbing us. We've never had this level of exposure in our lifetime to such sustained uh, deliberate evil. We've had one-offs like 9-11, but this is a, a, a state, a full nation state that was part of the civilized world that has just begun a, a campaign of unprecedented barbarity and cruelty. And we're seeing it like live, mm. not just even in the weekly, in the daily news, but hour by hour, minute by minute, people recording it, not just news organizations. And I think it does make people think, is that who we are? Is that how quickly we can go from civilization to barbarity? Were these people who were like living normally just, you know, a few weeks ago and now they are torturing and raping and slaughtering genocide? Yes, they are. That's that's what we all are capable of, not just Russians. So yeah. I think it is forcing people to think about the story of the world, its sadness, its pain. And and yeah, you, then you look at your own life and you, and you wonder about your connection too um, evil like that and am I capable of that? Yeah, mm. it's very searching. So when you think about your own life, uh, have you ever been in a spot personally where you were questioning the, the point of it all, questioning uh, the ultimate meaning in your life and wondering, you know, is there anything more to this? Definitely, Matt. In fact, in the Story Changer book, I go through a number of chapters on how God changes our, our story with his story. And I decided, well, what better way to actually demonstrate that than to tell how God has changed my story with his story. And I decided to be as vulnerable as I've ever been. I think when I wrote Reset, I thought I'd push the boundaries of you know <laughs> admitting my weaknesses and frailties and follies. Uh, but I think also I held some things back that I realized, you know, if I'm to be really honest, if I'm to be like Solomon and and just be totally frank, then I need to go further. And I've seen how it's helped people who have read Reset. And I believe and hope it will help people to just be honest and truthful, not going into gory details of my past. But yeah, I was raised in a Christian home but very much abandoned it in my late teens, early 20s. And then maybe five, six years into my trying to write my own story of happiness, really it was a, a very sad number of chapters and, and very destructive of myself and sadly others too. And God brought me to a point, in fact, I remember repeatedly I'd be going out on Friday nights with my friends on the town and I would at least four or five times, six times, and we end up on the on the steps outside of various nightclubs in Glasgow, just weeping. Hmm. And my friends sort of coming out and going, "What is wrong with you? Get back in the party!" You know, do you not know who's here? And you know, there's sort of fairly well known people we used to mix with in Glasgow and Scotland, and I was just miserable. I would go home and I would promise God never again. I wasn't seeking Him, but I, I knew this life was sickening and disgusting to him as well as to me and another few incidents happened that just brought me to rock bottom and to see just where my life was going maybe in the stories of others lives as well I had a boss who 
killed a, a six-month-old child in a drunk drive, dr- mm. driving accident, and went to prison for many years. And just seeing how that could be my story, and where's my story ending? Is it going to be this kind of ending? And, and I knew, looking back, I didn't know what was happening at the time, but looking back, I know it was God intervening. God, as it were, trying to wrench that pain as it was then, there were no keyboards then, but that pain out of my hand yeah. and saying, I can do much better than you. Are you yeah. ever going to give up? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that brings up this topic of, you know, our own stories and again, how they fit into God's. And you, you, you mentioned in the book, this idea of our inner story, the story that we tell mm-hmm. ourselves about ourselves. And sometimes in, in many ways, without even realizing it, we're not consciously always you know, narrating this story to ourselves. And yet it's there, always kind of running in the background. I wonder if you could unpack that idea of an inner story a little bit more. I think there are, in any book, a number of narratives going on with different characters. Um, there's There's a surface story, there's an inner story, there's a relational story. You know, skillful authors are are weaving different plot lines throughout. And I think in our own stories, there is, yes, an outer story, which most people can read, at least, you know, largely. Hmm. And yet there's also an inner story, what story we're telling ourselves about ourselves, about our world, about our place in it, about our relationship to God, a story we're telling ourselves about our identity, our past, our present, our future. And it's a story that we're not often aware of. We're we're very aware of the story that is visible and outward. But because that inner story has been running so long, and we've got so used to it, we hardly consciously hear it. And yet it is far more influential than our outer story. And... uh, therefore also needs to be changed and brought into contact with God's story. And in the book, I give some examples of that, focusing mainly on Joshua and his inner narrative when he was confronted with the challenge of leading Israel into the promised land. His inner narrative, apparently from the text of scripture, would appear to have been, I'm, I'm very weak, I'm very scared, I don't know what to do, I'm going to fail, I'm all alone. And of course, that was devastating to his leadership, to his model, to the people. It wasn't good for him or the people. And, and God comes into it with a new story, his story, to change that to, in God, I'm strong, I'm, I can be fearless, I have a plan to follow, I will be successful, and he will be with me. You look at Joshua 1, it's, it's just a beautiful example of how very simply, very briefly, God comes with with a few powerful words and changes Joshua's inner story and therefore changes his outer story too and the story of Israel. So just that that change in one narrative can can have huge consequences for good and bad. And therefore, we want to use Joshua and others in Scripture as examples of helping us to pause and just reflect and ask ourselves, what, what story am I telling myself? And try and bring that subconscious narrative to the surface, to our consciousness, and, and just think through, how is that affecting me, influencing me, impacting me? And, and how, 
what truths can I bring from God's word to change that for, for the good? Mm. So help us understand what it looks like to bring that that inner story kind of to the surface for ourselves to better understand it. Um, what are some questions that we could be asking ourselves to better understand that? Yeah, I think one of the core areas and the most influential is really who am I, my identity. And again, it's not something we go around thinking, you know, my identity is this every day, but it's there. And so you want to ask yourself, just write down a piece of paper, maybe, who am I? What are the five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten things that come to mind? And and don't try and do it rightly, you know, don't Mm. try and correct it as you go, but just, you know, let it go. Just as if you, you were... On pain of death, you had to get these 10 things out in 10 seconds. Um, <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's so hard to, to be actually truthful yeah. with ourselves. Especially as Christians, when we have a <clears throat> sense of the right answer, right? We, we sort <clears throat> of know what we should be thinking and saying. And we, it, I, I find that often for myself. It's, it's hard for me to even be honest, not just with other people, but even yeah. with myself about what's going on. Mm. Yeah, very much so. And then I think to sort of challenge yourself, you know, what 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 identities have others tried to impose upon us? So it might be we've been raised by a father who continually told us, you're a failure, you're not good enough. Or maybe you're a victim of abuse and and that abuse has made you think, I'm not worthy. I I am dirty. Or maybe I'm a victim. And so you go through your your past and your present and just try and identify the, as I said, half a dozen or 10 statements that are going round and round and round in your head and and putting them out in front of you and just trying to be as honest as we can with with ourselves. And I think it, it is best to do this alone. I think we're more likely to be honest with ourselves when we do that. And then... I think as we expose ourselves to God's word in general, so just daily Bible reading, is really rewriting our identity. And it's it's replacing what others have written upon our lives and in our lives by their actions, by their sins, with God's view of who we are in Christ and what identity he's given us. So I think a general constant exposure to God's word is is having that rewriting effect. It, often we're not aware of that. It's it's so gradual, it's so gentle, but it's happening. And then I think there are other times when either in a sermon or our own personal Bible reading, we're just really hit between the eyes with with a verse, with a truth, with a passage, a story, a psalm, something like that that just clearly connects with a very conscious, in a very conscious way, with with an error, with a lie, with a falsehood that's that's got a stronghold in our minds, and God's truth comes and pulls that down. I was just preparing a sermon this morning on Saint Corinthians ten, taking every thought captive, and um, God's breaking down of strongholds, replacing of our opinions with His own. Sometimes that can happen in in a very vivid, unforgettable way. I don't think that happens, you know, multiple times in our lives, like hundreds of times. 
I think in general, it's more of a general washing with the word. But there are times, and we pray for them, that will be significant quantum leap changes, as it were, mm. in our stories. And, and we take a big advance in, in that new story God's writing for us. Hmm. So, so when it comes to these inner stories, I, I wonder if there are, I wonder if you could respond to two in particular, or two categories of inner stories that people might be telling themselves. Maybe someone listening right now. Uh, the first would be, how would you respond to the person whose inner story is one of overwhelming shame and sadness, of, of disappointment in who they are, uh, maybe things that they've done, things that were done to them. And maybe for this person, it's hard to imagine how God could want to use their story or maybe even be able to use their story uh, for good, to be part of his story. What would you say to that person? You know, I often start, Matt, with somebody like that with just general observations about them. So I think it's tempting sometimes just to plunge into God's Word and start bringing, you know, truth to them from God's Word. I, I, I prefer personally just to connect on a very human level, first of all, listen to their story fully, and, and then begin to challenge them a little bit on, okay, you say no one loves you. Is that really true? You know, and I'll, I'll often know something about their lives. You know, your husband loves you, or your, your daughter loves you, your, your best friend who I know loves you. You say you've never done anything worthwhile in life. Well, I know that you pass an exam. I know that you hold down a good job. So it's, it's really looking, trying to help them take a different lens to their life that also allows some of the positives in. Mm. And just just begins to turn their mind to say, okay, okay, well, well, yeah, maybe I'm just you know reading the worst parts and I'm ignoring so, at least some good parts. I, I think if you can get a little chink of light in there, it often opens up to the much more significant truths in God's word. Hmm. I, I wonder if someone listening might think, well, why would you start there though? Why wouldn't you jump right to these deep? theological gospel truths that we hold dear, that I know you hold dear, why not start there and just open that open that armor wide up? Well, I think Jesus often started there. I, th I think of him dealing with the woman at the well and how he just started with water and thirst and her life, her, her messy life, uh, before he got to uh, the water of life and rewriting her story and giving her another story to tell. Mm. And I think it's just uh, human, uh, as mm. human as Jesus was, to, to start where people are and just use things that are, you would say, easier to believe initially than many of the awesome truths of God's word. Mm. So you're beginning to open up the possibility of a new way of looking at life with easier um, truths, easier facts, more verifiable, more visible, more tangible. But of course, that doesn't really ultimately help people. You have to get to the deeper truths. And therefore, we, we have to move into... So if it is somebody dealing with shame again, I would go to the woman at the well 
at the at Easter weekend there that my Easter Friday sermon was on the thief on the cross. My Easter Sunday was Mary Magdalene. And it's fascinating that the last person he spoke to before his death and the first person he spoke to when he rose again were two of the most shameful characters, two of the most messed up lives. Yeah. And it's like, you know, can I make it any clearer that I'm interested in the stories of the worst and the least and, you know, these are the people that I've come for. We're not lacking in examples of similar stories in the Bible. So I think if we can tell these stories to people in such a way that they can make connecting points with them and therefore begin to give them hope that, okay, their stories were bad, these people in the Bible, they were as bad, if not worse than mine, Look at how Jesus dealt with them. Look how he changed their lives, their eternities. Therefore, there's hope for me too. Yeah, and I want to come back to that topic of how some of these Bible stories and Bible characters can serve as uh, encouragement to us as we think about our own stories. Uh, but before we get into that, I wonder if you could speak to then the the opposite kind of person who who their internal story is uh, is sort of, you know, I kind of like how my life is right now. I'm comfortable. Hmm. I'm having fun. I'm not hurting anyone else. And I don't really need God, or at least maybe this is even a self-professed Christian who just is, you know, God is okay sort of on the outskirts of my life, and I'm not mm. that serious, and that's fine. Things feel good. What would you say to that person? It is a harder person to speak to, I would say, because there isn't that evident need there. There's a self-satisfaction and a self-sufficiency. And it's very rare, I think, that such a person will be brought to faith quickly, that there's more for them to go through, as it were. God can do it, but I think in general, it's, it's going to be a longer um, conversation. Mm. And my aim there would really be to, first of all, tell them the good news, the better story, in the hope that at least they'll walk away with that. And when the time comes, as it inevitably will, when their story goes pear-shaped, that that they will have something to fall back on. But I was also interested, I was watching some of the, the Ray Comfort videos at the weekend with my, my little son. And who, who is, who's Ray Comfort for those yeah, who aren't familiar he, with him? Yeah, he, he uh, runs apologetic, evangelistic ministries. I think it's called Living Waters. I've not seen a lot of his, and some of them I'm kind of a bit uncomfortable with. But in this one, he was talking about, he was talking to a woman on a pier uh, who had just been passing and he started talking to her about the gospel and he interestingly commented afterwards, he said, you see how I didn't talk to her about intellectual problems in her life with, with Christianity, but I spoke to her about moral problems in her life and he he was very firmly of the view that the way to prepare people for listening to the intellectual story of God hmm. is to bring to them the moral story of God. In other words, you know, until people know what they have done wrong and not done right, they're not really going to look for a solution, another story. And yeah, it was fascinating to watch this woman just slowly succumb to his questions, kind, thoughtful, wise, loving questions, 
clearly left the conversation with an openness to hear the gospel, which he did give to her latterly. So I think that's a that's a you know just a a great pattern to follow. We're mm. we're often tempted to really work on that you know proofs for this and proofs for that and evidences and arguments where as you know the moral conscience the moral story is is where really the opportunity for the gospel story begins Hmm. that relates to something you write in your book uh you, you talk about your own story and you say that the biggest and most influential lie that the villain and by that you mean satan who you call the story shredder the biggest lie that he told me for 22 years was, I want you to be happy and God wants you mm. to be miserable. And he did this primarily by painting a sinful life as a good life and a holy life as a grim life. I believe this lie and it was ruining my life. And I think that's the way that many of us, even as mm. Christians, can sometimes view the life that God calls us to, the story that God calls us to, to partake of. Mm. Uh, but that's just so wrong and yet we, we fall for it even as believers. Help us understand why we do that. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. I would say the most common lie Satan tells people that he wants us to be happy, God wants us to be miserable, and that a, a godly life is the most miserable life. And so, you know, what I did and what many do is, okay, well, I, I want to go to heaven, but I also want a happy life. So, like, I'll give, you know, I might give God the last year the last day if possible but (laughs) until then (laughs) I'm going to get as much happiness as I can get and it was interesting I I was doing some studies on Matthew Henry the Puritan commentator expositor of the Bible and a theme that occurs throughout all his writing is the happiness of the Christian life I think we've lost a bit of that in Christian circles at least more you know reformed evangelical circles and I think it's because of an overreaction to the Joel Osteen type, you know, happy, 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 all the time, mm. time, time. Yeah. All that Christianity is about is more happiness. Prosperity we, gospel. Yeah, prosperity gospel, yeah. And I think we've overreacted to that. And we are losing a major apologetic argument for the gospel. And that is that that a holy life is generally a happier life. Uh, It's not guaranteeing you a suffering-free life, not at all. Uh, There will definitely come sufferings in the Christian life. But as Matthew Henry points out repeatedly, with sorrow also comes compensating joys that balance out, if not overbalance, the sorrows, even in the sorrows. And... To present the Ten Commandments, so I'm preaching on a, a series in my own church just now called The Ten Pleasures, and it's on the Ten Commandments. And when I initially set out on it, I thought, well, I don't know if I'm going to get to the end of this. I, I could easily see how, you know, no other gods before me, yeah, you know, God alone being our delight and treasure and so on. But how can you portray these other moral laws of God as pleasures? Well, it's been surprisingly easy. And and I think as well as you look at the world and we're seeing the opposite, the evidence that we can gather, even from secular sources, to show the misery of, of a life that disregards and disobeys God's law is overwhelming. Mm. And so you've got, you've got even things like, you know, a rest day a week. You've got multiple secular organizations now 
advocating for this. Uh, the Sabbath Manifesto, for example, that's a secular uh, organization. And just if you start going through the Bible looking for this, you see it everywhere that a, a, an obedient life is a happy life. Yes, it comes with sufferings. Uh, but we have completely lost, it seems at times, just the joy of being a Christian, mm. the joy of being saved, the joy of being adopted, even in the midst of some of the greatest sufferings. And I've seen that as a pastor as well, that the ability of the gospel to not just sustain, but to inspire, to give incredible joys in the midst of the deepest sadnesses, and even if there are days without any joy, joy does come. And so I think we want to really begin to defeat this story of the devil that the, the sinful life is the happy life and really argue hard against that and show from Scripture, from our own stories, how a life following Christ is, in general, the happiest possible life. Mm. And that's such a good reminder for us. Uh, even as Christians, we can uh, struggle with that. But let's talk a little mm. bit about that. The other side, though, the, the, the suffering and the pain that, that we will experience, mm. that is part of life in a broken world. Uh, I actually came across an article that you wrote for Table Talk magazine a few years ago. And in it, you talk about the pain of failure and disappointment mm. in this life. And, and I think failure is one of those things, whether it's our own failure or the failure of those closest to us, or maybe the failures of those that we followed and learned from and, and they shaped us in some profound way and then and then disappointed us. Um, that, that kind of failure can be one of those things that just kind of haunts us for mm. years. It just sticks with us. So you, you write in the article, we live in a success culture that idolizes victory and fulfillment, but it's all so unreal. When we turn to the Bible, we're given a deep dose of reality. Failure and disappointment are on just about every page. Whether we like it or not, it's much truer to life than the success narratives that we aspire to and are trying to write for ourselves. Mm. So I think, obviously, God gives us successes for our joy, but also uses failures and frustrations and disappointments for our good as well, our, not just our spiritual good, our, our psychological good. I've had numerous failures in my life, and sometimes I would have to admit that they have been very prominent in my story, and maybe even first. You know, if somebody was to ask me, who are you, David? Mm. At times I would have said, I'm a failure. And I failed it at business, I failed in pastoring, I failed exams, I failed in relationships. Um, but while admitting that, honestly, fully, frankly, I also look back and see how God used these failures and is mm. still using them to humble, to make me more dependent, to make me more sympathetic to others who have failed and less condemning and to to be able to encourage others who have had their own falls and stumbles along the way. And therefore, I think the, the key is not to deny failure, but to reframe it and to put a, a biblical frame of truth around them and show how they ultimately lead us to Christ for forgiveness and to Christ 
to worship uh, the the unfailing one, the one who has never failed, to manage somehow to live a life here of 33 years in the midst of the, the worst suffering imaginable, and yet never failed, not once, in his thinking, in his feeling, in his speaking, in his acting. And the more you see your own failure, the more that perfection just overwhelms you with awe and admiration. So I think that God can use the failed chapters in our stories to lead us again to his success chapters in Scripture, uh, the, the, the ones especially written by Jesus. Mm. You mentioned in that, in that quote this success culture that we live in that idolizes victory and fulfillment. What, what would be an example of that that, that we maybe are swayed by? <laughs> So uh, I love fishing, and <laughs> I, I, I was commenting to my wife last week after a fruitless day in the river, a fishless day in the river, I should say. Um, it's funny how I never see pictures on Facebook or Instagram of people with no fish. So you're tempted to think no one else goes fishing and comes home without fish. Mm. Because the only time they take pictures, the only time I take pictures, is when I've got a fish to show. So in a sense, that's a a very down-to-earth example of the success culture. We only talk about our successes. Only successes are worthy of publication. And and therefore, it it conveys a very false message. If you just think on that fishing illustration, everyone else catches fish when they go fishing. And then you you move it to more more serious things like the only time... You see people talking about their job. It's when they got a promotion, talking about their books when they've sold, you know, thousands of copies, um, and and so on. And therefore, it, clearly, we are a success-oriented culture, and it really um, is a false narrative. It, it's not denying that our success is, but it's only half the story. Uh, we have to be much more honest about our lives. And again, I think that's where church community comes in. We can be honest with one another. We don't have to put on a show. Uh, we don't have to just talk about our successes. If we want to be part of the book club, as I describe the church in this book, um, we, we want to come together and be, just be really honest about our stories and share Yes, our successes, but also our sorrows. And therefore we rejoice with those who rejoice, but we weep with those who weep as well. And encourage one another onwards to keep writing or keep seeking God to write better stories for us. Hmm. So David, maybe as a final question, uh, let's talk about the end of our stories, or at least the end of our earthly stories. Uh, You write in the book that Jesus offers us more than a happy ending. How so? Well, in a way, he offers us an unending story, the never-ending story. The the end of our lives here on earth can be painful physically and even painful spiritually. I've known Christians who have died in darkness Hmm. without the great joy and assurance of where they are going. And... Yet we know that on the other side of that final earthly chapter, no matter how that ends, there is an endless story of joy, of peace, of life, of love. And 
that's that story is the one that all our stories have to lead to. We do not want that other end, which is never-ending death. No, nobody's story ever comes to an end. It's 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 everlasting. Yes, our earthly stories have an end at the tomb, at the grave, but our eternal stories are forever, and our eternal story is related to our earthly story, and it all depends on whether we have had our stories rewritten by God's story, changed by God's story, and if we have, then our eternal story will be well worth writing and living, and if not, then it's it's an R-rated eternal story that uh, cannot be changed. Mm. It's beyond changing, and that that's one of the one of the passions behind the book. Matt was I really wanted for years to have a simple short book that I could put in the hands of unbelievers and present Jesus in a way that maybe they hadn't heard before as the story changer in a way they can relate to. I think there's a lot of talk about story these days in different contexts, even in marketing and business and psychology, and and just try and show how this is, this is the only way to write a good story. And it's by having the story changer involved in our lives. And I hope that I hope that the book will help Christians reframe their view of Jesus and the gospel. But my, one of my greatest passions is that it's, it's a book that Christians can give to non-Christians and that it will draw them in and draw them to the story changer so that their eternal stories will will be far better, mm. infinitely better than, than it will be without the story changer. Mm. And I think it's such a helpful tool in that regard because, you know, so often in our circles, we talk a lot about God's story, God's story of salvation and his story of the world. And and that's right. There is an emphasis on God and what he is doing. But I think what you've done so helpfully is is kept that emphasis, kept that at the center, but then shown how that does intersect with our own stories and, the, hmm. the, and the, on our own lives and the way that we think about our lives, the arc that we see to our lives. And that's such a helpful, encouraging thing. So thank you, David, so much for taking the time today to talk with us. Thanks, Matt. Great to be with you again. That was David Murray on how God can change our stories with his. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Story Changer, How God Rewrites Our Story by Inviting Us into His. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.